Good morning, church. As the Bible reading says up on the screen, we're reading from Mark chapter 12. It's actually verses 28 to 43, because there's only 43 verses in that chapter. So it'll be up on the screen behind me. Starting at verse 28, chapter 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished more severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Great, we've got to Mark 12. Question for you, um, do you love God? Thank you, I heard that. Do you love God? Do you enjoy God? We talk about, and rightly so, God loves us. We make a big deal about that. But I wonder, do you love God? Do you love God and does that show itself in the joy you take in God and in how you treat others? Keep that in your head as we walk through the passage today because Jesus takes a scribe on a journey, unpacking for him and the rest of the scribal community what it means to love God and others. And you notice uh, in verse 28, 35, and 38, 
the phrase, depending on your version, scribe, or as the NIV says, teachers of the law. And these three phrases unite our section together. So, first of all, as we get into it, who are these scribes? We hear about Pharisees and Sadducees. If you've been at church for a while, you might know that, but teachers of law. Well, they are experts in the Jewish law. They were copyists, they were editors, they were teachers, they were jurors on issues of debate that a Pharisee or someone else might have. Their role was important in Jewish society to bring clarity to all 613 Old Testament laws and commands. That's the first five books of Moses. They were basically experts in that. They were the big thinkers behind it all. They had great respect in the community. And by Jesus' day, they would get the first seats in the synagogue. You would stand up when they walked in the room. Um, You would be amazed at them. If you were very wealthy, you could actually employ a scribe in your family to manage your affairs uh, and to help you kind of understand God's law on a one-to-one basis. And actually, this employment is how the scribes made their money. They were not wealthy like the Pharisees. They were reliant solely on someone giving them money or some offerings at the temple. They were dependent on a benefactor to make a living. But for all their knowledge and great status in society, uh, they were still missing a few things. And so at this point, Jesus is in the temple, and that's been the theme for the last few weeks, the temple and how Jesus is the true greater temple, and he's teaching in the temple at this point. And one of the scribes, a teacher, goes, oh, this guy's got some knowledge and learning. And he sees Jesus debating, and he goes up and asks him a question. And he says, what's most important? So we're going to start here. The first stop is what's most important. Then we'll work through... Uh, Two, two destinations, you could say, he takes him along to in today's passage. So two things, and then we'll end. Uh, we'll get to the end, and we'll finish. But you'll see where, where Jesus is going, hopefully. The first thing he says is, essentially, what's most important, Jesus? What supersedes everything else in the Torah, the first five books of Moses? What's the essence of the faith in God? What makes belief in God what it is? That without it, it would be something else. Tell me what this is, Jesus. And so Jesus responds by quoting two verses in the Old Testament. The first one is from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and then Leviticus 19. Now the Deuteronomy passage, it's known as the Shema. Very famous, it comes from the Hebrew word to hear. That's not the right saying, is it? Shema, thank you. The Shema. I don't speak Hebrew. Um, The Shema, it means to hear. And we need to hear something, that's the beginning of what Jesus says. And what do we have to hear? And Natasha pointed that out for us. Hear that our Lord God is one. One in both his perfections, unity, purpose, will. God is not divided into parts or pieces. He's triune, yes, but he's one. One in his supreme status as the creator and ruler of all. There are not three gods or 45 fighting for supremacy or airtime. There is one above all and everything. And this one God is personable, identifiable, relatable. Notice it says this one Lord is our God. There is a unique relationship status you can have with the Lord of everything. You can belong to him and call this one Lord ours, yours. That's the first thing, hear that. Secondly, once we know this God, we respond to our God in love. Love, of course, in this context is a verb. And there are four definitions of how we're to love God. And they're all nouns describing what it means to love God in more detail. And these four all begin with the phrase, with all your. With all your. 
Now, what Jesus does is gather up every part of your humanity, heart, soul, strength, mind, to make the point that loving God is so all-encompassing that non, not one part of you is absent or left out or required not to love God with, you see. All of me always loves all of God, is his point. So first thing he says is know and enjoy loving God. The scribes love knowledge of God. They love the respect, they love the position, they love being attached to God. But I'm not sure they actually love God the way Jesus describes. For them, God is more an idea, a theological system, than a loving relationship to be had with the Father, Son and Spirit. You see, the more they knew, the more they should have delighted in God. The wisest, most learned Christian should be the most happiest and joyful, right? Which is why, in this section, the command isn't actually on the word love. The imperative, the command here is actually on the word hear. We are commanded to hear something. Love God. Love this one God. Early in our marriage, um, I would often come home and I'd say to Natasha, um, I was going to buy you flowers today, but I didn't. Because it's the thought that counts. And she's never been satisfied with that answer. But if it's the thought that counts, then surely that must count for something, right? And so too, the thought never really counts when it comes to love of God either. We're designed to love God for loving God with all we are, body, mind, strength, spirit, with, with us and our bodies. You notice it's very bodily focused in some ways. Christianity has never has a low view of the body or love, right? God values our body because the greatest command is to use it to love him. And in a close second, we use it to love others. Which is what Jesus says by quoting Leviticus 19.18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Now just hear this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's very strange he says that. Linger with me for a moment because you, you might hear that and you say, I don't like myself very much. My body image, the way I look, conflicting thoughts, my height, my weight, my intellectual or physical limitations or just who I am as a person, the voice of shame and guilt deep inside that says I'm not loved, I'm unworthy, look at the mistakes I've made, the guilt. And then Jesus says, the second greatest thing is to love someone the way you love yourself. And you think, that does not sound like a healthy way to navigate relationships when I hardly even like myself. How, how does that make sense? The way forward is to go back to the command Jesus gives, which is here. Hearing God, the one Lord, your God, his voice, is what's to define us and come first. Jesus invites you and me to hear God's voice as the alternate voice to our inner one, the conflicting one. Jesus invites to, us to love him and to let him be the foundation for loving others and ourselves. Often God's voice is not the loudest voice, you don't quite hear it very well. But as Lord, he does have the better voice. And the good news is that voice can be increased. You can make the volume slider go up 
It can be on repeat in your life because faith is that volume slider. Begins to see and realize that God's voice is the truer voice, even when shame and discouragement want to separate you from people, from helping others, from serving, from listening to God. And this is very difficult to do. Don't don't hear me wrong. Uh, Don't hear me in the wrong way. In our culture that regularly has images telling us this is what you should or shouldn't be, the good news is that in Christian thought, God's love becomes the external template that we use to love ourselves and others. I don't have to look within. I don't have to look at a screen. I don't have to look at the mirror. I, don't, I look to the external, supreme, one Lord. You see, Christianity invites you to find a deeper, higher, longer, bigger than anything you can imagine love and to hear and know this God behind it all. One of the famous um, storybook Bibles in the last 20 years or so is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you're a parent, get it. If you haven't, if you're not a parent, get it anyway and read it because it's wonderful. And she's telling the story, paraphrasing it, and in the very beginning she tells the story of creation and how God made everything. And then she has a sentence that drips with a biblical view of humanity. And it's always stuck to me. This is what she says um, after God made, made everyone. She says, God loved them. God loved them with all his heart. Here's the thing. And they were lovely because he loved them. You hear that? God loved them with all his heart. They were lovely because he loved them. And that's where it all begins. Do you hear this morning who this Lord God is? Because when we begin to love this God, it puts humans and God in the right perspective. That is, if God is big, humans are the right size, they're Goldilocks. You know, Goldilocks, the porridge, not too heavy, not too light, whatever, just right. That's the commercial from the 90s. No, what am I saying? The, the porridge and the chairs, it's the... You see, humans are not too small that you look down on them and take advantage of them when you love God. Humans are not too big that you become desperate for others' approval or fearful of them, but they're just right. So you can respond with grace and kindness, forgiveness and love to them. Loving God is Goldilocks for loving myself and others, you see. Which means Christian love is pointing one another to the joy of God's opinion of them. The safety they have as a human being in Christ. Christian love uses our bodies to love others even when it's hard, like the Good Samaritan, even when it's costly. In Luke 10 you can read that story. So are you loving others like that? It's practical for sure, but it's more than just a lasagna. I wonder, given how all-encompassing this is, would, would you say today you find it easier to love God with your mind than your strength? Do you have a preference? Do you find yourself loving a part of God? And I say that in terms of the Trinity. Do you love the Father more than the Son? Or find it easier to love the Spirit than the Father? Like, is it, do you identify with a part of God more readily? Or how about this, deep down as you hear Jesus say this, would you rather have thought, Jesus should have said, others should love me instead of me loving them. I wonder, is there a deficiency of love in you, of God and towards others? Do you spend more time, do you find yourself spending more time lamenting over the fact that no one loves me? 
or my family, in, when in reality, you failed to hear the first part of knowing and enjoying the love of God. Perhaps, perhaps as Christians, we are malnourished at times because we simply do not love God and we're too obsessed with ourselves. It's good to reflect over that. We love because he first loved us. And I said at the start, do you love God? And the, and the, the scribe is asked this question and Jesus responds. And, but Jesus doesn't commend him when he says the right answer. He agrees with Jesus. You might agree with Jesus, but he doesn't say, oh, well done. He says, keep going. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What he does then is he maps out the steps, the stops along the way. The scribe needs to travel to enter the kingdom of God because he's still missing a few things. He might know the answer, but there's two things that's stopping him from really understanding. And the first one, the first destination is, is the identity of the son of David. Jesus stops at Psalm 110 to get them wrestling. The scribes, he says, why do the scribes say this? And he gets them wrestling with the identity of the Messiah. That's the Jewish saviour. The scribe has said, teacher, you're right, in verse 32. But what Jesus wants to do is not move him to say, oh, you think I'm a teacher? It's not enough. Jesus is Lord. Do you see him as that? So he goes to this psalm, which describes David, the famous king, and the Messiah. Now, they understood the Messiah to come from David's line as a son of him, which is what it says. But David saw the Messiah, the Jewish saviour, as infinitely more than a son, a descendant. He was superior in every way. And for all the great learning, they've missed the superiority, the magnitude of who the Messiah is. They've made Jesus, the scribes have anyway, into a great teacher, reducing his status as Lord God. And Jesus wants them to think, you have to know who I am. It's a necessary stop to enter the kingdom of God is, is knowing that I'm not just a teacher, but I'm the son of God, the son of David. I am the one you need to believe and trust. And we, we, would, we could do well at this moment to listen to C.S. Lewis, the Narnia writer, who reflects on a similar thing, and you may have heard it. He says this, People often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept him as a great teacher, but not his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can fall at his feet and or fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this conviction that Jesus is more than just a good guy leads us to have our life course at church here. It leads us to talk about meeting Jesus this year as a theme because we want more people to recognize Jesus is Lord has the identity of Jesus come home to you this morning, I wonder? Is he the Lord over your heart and soul and mind and strength? Because the first stop is about the identity of Jesus. And the second one Jesus takes the scribes on is about status and power and greatness. Do you want God to make you great or is he the great one in your life? Stop number two. So the second command in this section is when Jesus says, watch out. And he says, rather than look at the scribes as great examples of devotion to God, Jesus cautions against their form of religion that's going around. Not only have they missed the identity of the Messiah, they've missed the point of what loving God and others actually looks like. 
If we were to see scribes today, Four Corners would have just done a report on them in about a few weeks ago. Um, widows would have come forward telling their story of how uh, they gave money to what they thought was, was a good cause, but it turns out it was just a scam. All the money they gave to have someone explain God's word and understand how to, to live it out, and it, it was just a show to make themselves look good. Scribes loved the perks and the rewards and the grab bags and the free stuff and the reputation they got for being a scribe. But they didn't just love it. They demanded it. And they preyed upon others to get it. But far worse than a 15-minute bad reputation from the media, God himself is gravely angry when he, in his name people mistreat the poor, the widowed, and the downcast of this world. If you were to read the references to the widowed and the outcast in the Old Testament, after every time in the first five books, it says, I am the Lord God and I will pay back those who mistreat someone like this. There is a, a, a unique sense in which God is very keenly in tune to those in this world who are often seen as the lowest. They will be punished most severely, Jesus says. Their religion is a horrible way and has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. God will judge the sin and the injustice which he sees. What Jesus does is give a harsh criticism of the scribal culture and then he points to someone who is not far off but far into the kingdom of God. And this is a great twist because this is someone a scribe would least expect to see they wouldn't think of this person as an example of someone who's in the kingdom of God. It turns out one of the widows they're devouring, she's in while they're out. So Jesus then spots a poor widow putting into the temple offering box the two smallest coins in circulation. And what strikes Jesus here isn't what she gives, but where she gives it from. She, he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more to the treasury than all others. Her description is someone of less than, than everyone else in this passage. Yet she's generous beyond measure. That is, God is not more impressed with someone putting in two five-cent pieces or one Bitcoin worth $79,000 today into the temple box. He doesn't care if love of God and joy of God does not exist when it's done. Give 100 Bitcoins. Give two five-cent pieces. Jesus says they gave out of their wealth but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she has to live on. The word live is where we get our word bios or biology from today. That is, her life system, the resources to maintain life, the stuff that would support her in her daily life, those two coins which unlock so much of society given to God. She's operating out of a love of God that says, what's the maximum I can do to love God and others? Because in an ironic twist, the money going in the temple would have gone back to support widows. This woman saw God as her greatest treasure. This is a woman who loves to praise and worship God, not to get praise and worship from others like the scribes. This woman's life is totally orientated to God because he is her life. Our youngest daughter is learning, and she's seven, about pocket money and jobs. And um, we've realized in our world today, when I was growing up, you would, it was cash, 
So you do the thing and you get the cash, and it was very tangible, right? Whereas today, everything's on your card or it's on your phone. And so it's hard to kind of manage some of that a little bit. So we're, we're trying to teach her this stuff. And, um, but, but cash and card and phone payments are really tricky for a seven-year-old. The concept of where does it go? How does it get there? And often she does this. And it's a deeply theological understanding. Here's what I'm saying. You get this. She has her two five-cent pieces. I'd like to buy this, Daddy. Oh, you don't have enough. That's okay. Just use your phone. And you laugh because you think, oh, I, I know, oh no, you see that. But for her, do you see what she's doing? She understands the little she has is nothing compared to the amount her father has. Do you see the connection with the widow? We have a father who provides. You have a big brother, the son of David, who gives his life in Mark 10.45 in serving God and his people. Jesus has been taking the scribes on a journey to show that they are close to the kingdom, but there's still a little way to go. And along the way, he's redirecting their focus from an intellectual belief to help them see the identity of Jesus. To redirecting them from seeking greatness and status from religion, but seeing how the truly great one himself would serve us by giving his own life. And then to see what that looks like on the ground is the poor widow. Now, there's a very small verse I skipped over, and I think it's, it's a great example of what we should think and feel at this point. Can someone please read in a nice, clear voice, Mark 12, 37, the end part after the full stop? Just any one loud voice, the end of Mark 12, 37. So we can all hear. You can wait. Thank you. The large crowd listened to Jesus with delight. Here, he started with the command here. Hear God, hear Jesus, find great delight. Not from knowledge, not from reputation or wealth, but in loving the God who already loves you. From learning more about the God of joy and knowing him. Nothing wrong with knowledge. You should have it. Please do not be a malnourished Christian when it comes to the Bible. It never says that. Learn about God to find joy in Him. In fact, this little word delight, it's very rare in the New Testament, but it's where we get our word hedonistic from. Here, the object of happiness, pleasure, joy is listening to Jesus, you see? Knowing God, listening to Him, He offers a joyful life, not in things and stuff, but in realizing who He is. Oh, Tim Chester, who wrote... Um, this book called Enjoying God, and I recommend it to you if you'd love a great book to read. Um, he says this, and I, I'll end with what he says, and it was written a while ago, and you'll hear the reference to, you, you know, you'll make sense of it. On her wedding day, he says, a bride may receive wealth and status and property and privilege from her new husband. She might be delighted to have access to his DVD collection. She might be excited about moving into a new home or glad to have her name added to his bank account. But what she really wants is him. There are so many blessings that flow from being a Christian. But the real blessing is Jesus. Do you love him? This week... Two questions for you. What could you do 
to enjoy loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And hear the word enjoy. And then secondly, how can you show the love of God to someone? It's the Christian faith. Let me pray. Jesus, it is joyful to know you. You are a God who came to give us life in you. You served us by giving us your life so we can have ourselves orientated to the true object of happiness, joy and pleasure. May we help us, Lord, to love you with all we have. Father, we do love you. Help us to then show that in the way we love others in our community, in our world. May the essence of our faith be the example of that widow, as Jesus pointed out. A life of worshipping, enjoying, treasuring God above all else. May you be pleased to work your goodwill in our lives for your glory and our good. Amen.